0: The human heart, sadly, is, as the prophet Jeremiah said, deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it. Those are some sad words. Apart from Jesus, those are some very, very sad words. That this is true of all of us. And this can be true even as we approach our passage today. It's a very familiar passage here in Mark chapter 11, so turn there if you would. A very familiar passage. It's even been given a nickname, the well-known title being the Triumphal Entry. But the passage is actually more about Jesus' departure than it is about how he makes an entrance. And it can be easy to be deceived by our own hearts that this passage does not necessarily apply to us. We can be tricked into thinking that it's mostly about how fickle the nation of Israel had become in their worship. After all, they were the ones who had turned the temple into a farmer's market. The temple, in fact, had become a farmer's market where you could get the best free-range lambs to offer as a sacrifice where you could get non-GMO grain to offer as an offering, where you could get imported sea salt, and where you could find locally sourced honey, all, of course, to improve your sacrifices. So the temple, the place where Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, lived and where he invited sinners to come and commune with him, it got turned into a bank where you could exchange your foreign currency and get a loan. It got turned into a petting zoo. The temple where sinners could go and worship and enjoy the Lord became this all-in-one farmer's market bank petting zoo. That's how far away the nation of Israel had drifted. It all became about offering free-range lambs instead of enjoying the God who invites sinners into his presence. Evidence of deceitful and desperately sick human hearts. And it's easy for us to approach this passage and miss, number one, how it exposes our own hearts, and number two, how it showcases the glory of the gospel that God wants to be with his people. God wants to be with us. Think about that. Jesus wants to be with us. He wants to commune with us individually and then corporately as a church body. This is why Jesus flips the script by flipping tables and chairs in the temple. It's because the nation of Israel had bumbled and fumbled their calling to be God's people and to enjoy fellowship and communion with him and to be a light to the nation's. And that's why in our passage today, Jesus is the last person that the religious leaders wanted to see enter the temple. Their hearts were hardened and deceived by sin. They just wanted to look good on the outside and merely go through the motions and not be changed and not be transformed. Kevin Labby said, honestly, I sometimes want to look good way more than I actually want to be good. Yep, that self-reliance, self-centeredness, and self-righteousness needs to die. Big time. Jesus seems to agree. Discipleship is simultaneously life in Jesus and death to self. When I was younger, I liked reading the story of Jesus cleansing the temple. I sensationalized it, imagining him flipping tables and whipping money changers like an 80s action hero terrorizing Soviets. It was gratifying to imagine a fiery-eyed Jesus confronting the sins of others, those who would dare turn his house into a den of thieves. Later, I realized that Jesus is even more zealous about cleansing me, a temple of the Holy Spirit. If it's not of him, it's got to go. Uh-oh. This is where the Pharisees and religious leaders were. They wanted to look good on the outside more than they wanted to be good. They were resting on their self-reliance, their self-centeredness, their self-righteousness. And all of this trickled down to the nation, to the average worshiper in Israel. And we'll see Jesus deal with them in today's passage. Jesus will come flipping tables and whipping money changers like an 80s action hero terrorizing Soviets. This is how much Jesus will be grieved at the religious leaders and the system of works righteousness that they had perpetuated all of these years where you can just go through the motions, where you could be good enough to be made right with God. So Jesus will bring the hammer down on the old covenant religious system. And Jesus will announce that he is the true Israel. He is the true sacrifice. He is the true temple. So turn to Mark chapter 11 if you haven't. And what we'll see today is that Jesus invites sinners to come to him by faith. And here's the good news that our desperately sick and deceitful hearts need to hear this morning. Jesus can't get close enough to his people. Jesus can't get close enough to us. He he wants to be with us. Isn't that good news? That God cannot get close enough to his elect people? And he knows our hearts. And he wants to be with us. That's why God lived in a tent in the Old Testament. Where was the tabernacle under the Old Covenant? In the center of the nation of Israel, in the middle of all of the people. And then God moved into a temple because he wanted to be close to his people. Because he loves being close to his people. And because he wanted the nations to come and worship and enjoy him and then become a part of his family too. But as we're about to see in Mark's gospel, the nation of Israel had turned God's home into a zoo. They turned it into a farmer's market. They turned it into a bank. But Jesus will do what the nation of Israel could not do. He is the true temple. He is the true sacrifice. And now, his people can't mess it up. Jesus secures our status as sons and daughters of God and our behavior Our desperately sick and deceitful hearts cannot mess this thing up. Now, in the new covenant, it's all riding on Jesus and what he has already done for us through his life, death, and resurrection. It's all riding on him, not us. And speaking of riding... Jesus has some riding to do on a donkey. So let's look at his word now. Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus said, and they let them go. So Jesus is still continuing on his journey to Jerusalem where he knows that the cross awaits him. And as they come near to the villages of Bethphage, or Bethphagee, not sure how to pronounce it, um, and they come to the village of Bethany, Jesus sends two of his disciples into the city to get his ride. Jesus is going to come cruising into Jerusalem like an 80s action hero riding on a donkey. So Jesus sends two disciples into town, not to fetch the Batmobile, but to fetch a donkey. Jesus is not as Bruce Wayne as you and I want him to be. He's humble. He's meek. Oh, make no mistake about it. He has power. But he's also meek and kind and gentle and very, 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 very humble. So Jesus tells them that they will find a donkey tied up and they should take it. And if anyone asks what they are doing, they are to tell them that Jesus needs the donkey. And it goes down just like Jesus said. They find the donkey, they start to untie it, then the owners run up and ask what they are doing. So the two disciples tell them that Jesus needs a donkey and he will send it back soon. I mean, you can't miss this incredible and this awesome truth here. That Jesus was totally in control. He's walking towards his death, and yet he is totally in control. He knew there was a donkey in that town that had been waiting its whole life to have Jesus sit on it. The donkey may not have known that, but Jesus knew it. Jesus knew 10,000 years ago. Jesus knew on the day that this donkey was born, that one day he would ride it into Jerusalem and ride it to his death. And Jesus knew that the owners would freak out when the disciples took the donkey. So that whole situation was under his control. Everything that happens in this passage is under the control of Jesus. And Jesus knew that the moment he rode on this donkey and made his way to Jerusalem, that he was fulfilling a prophecy that was spoken back around the 520s BC. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Matthew tells us in his gospel that Jesus was fulfilling this prophecy when he hopped on that donkey. This passage, as I mentioned, is called the triumphal entry, but this is the triumphal entry Zechariah style. As Jesus rode on this donkey that had never been ridden before, he was fulfilling a 500-plus-year-old prophecy. Now, in the ancient Near East, kings often rode on donkeys, so this would be not unusual for a king to do, but what is unique about this event is that it stresses the humility of Jesus, which the prophet Zechariah points out. Riding a donkey rather than a chariot or some war horse or a tank. It reflects Jesus' humble character and nature. He is meek and kind and gentle. And he's not a sissy either. Okay, Just because he's meek, kind, and gentle, he's not a sissy, he's not a pushover. But he is meek and he is kind and he is gentle with bruised reeds and flickering wicks. He is not an out-of-control, domineering, self-absorbed king. He rides in humility, and he rides as one who is totally in control of what is happening. He is humble, and yet he is absolutely in control of everything in his world. And if Jesus knew everything that was happening here in Mark chapter 11, then that means he knows everything that's happening in your life right now. Every single thing that's happening in your life right now that's got you stressed out and got you scratching your head and wondering why it's happening, everything that's happening in your life right now, Jesus knows. And that means that you can trust him. We can trust Jesus right now, at this moment, all the way to the end of our lives, even though we can't see that far into the future, even though we don't have a picture of what our future holds. We can trust Him. You may be wondering what God is doing in your life right now, why He is allowing things to happen, but you can trust Him, just like the disciples here when they went on their donkey-finding mission. So the disciples return with the donkey, and Jesus gets on it. And as he is making his way to Jerusalem, the crowds begin throwing their cloaks on the ground before Jesus. And they start spreading out these leafy branches too, and they cry out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. The word Hosanna means save us now. So the crowd is crying out to Jesus To save them. They have heard his teaching. They have seen his miracles. All the many miracles that he had already done. They had seen the most tender, kind, and compassionate man. As he gently dealt with sinners. And so now they cry out to him. To save them. And to set up God's kingdom. To set up the Davidic kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament. And then later in this chapter. We will see Jesus tell them how they can be saved. They're asking to be saved. And later on in the chapter, he will tell them, here's how you can be saved. But now is not the time. Jesus knows the cross awaits him. He did not come to set up an earthly kingdom and overthrow Rome, which were the expectations of the people at the time. Jesus came to save sinners. So he has to get to the cross. But Jesus will tell the disciples later in this passage how they can be saved. He will answer the crowd's cry of, Hosanna, save us now. More on that in a moment. But let me point out something here that often gets mentioned by preachers. The crowd that is crying, save us now, is not the same crowd that will cry, crucify him later in Jerusalem. The crowd that is crying, save us now, save us now, is not the same crowd that later on will cry, crucify him. This crowd has been following Jesus as he has been zigzagging across 30 some cities across uh, Israel. They have been with him. They are mostly Galileans from the north. The crowd in Jerusalem, however, will have this allergic reaction to Jesus. Because he was a redneck rabbi from a podunk town in northern Israel. If you remember earlier in our series in Mark, I pointed out that the Jews living in Jerusalem did not look fondly on their backwoods redneck brothers from up north in Galilee, which is where Jesus is from. So this crowd that follows Jesus, they want to be saved by him. And so they cry out, Hosanna, save us now. They do not change their mind a few days later like some people suggest. As commentator R.T. France says, There is no warrant here for the preacher's favorite comment on the fickleness of a crowd which could shout, Hosanna one day and crucify him a few days later. They are not the same crowd. The Galilean pilgrims shouted, Hosanna as they approached the city. The Jerusalem crowd shouted, Crucify him. This crowd loves Jesus. They've been following him. He has captured their hearts. This crowd loves him. It might be a good time to pause and let me ask you, do you love Jesus? Have you wandered from him? Is your heart cold or distant? And, And whose heart at any moment cannot drift and become cold to our Lord? We've all been there. Maybe you're there Today, right now, and Jesus is saying to you, rekindle your love for him today. Is that you right now? Jesus is saying to you, rekindle your love for me. Return to your first love and enjoy him once again. I don't know who that's for, but I just wrote it on the bottom of my manuscript this morning. This crowd loves Jesus. They are crying out for, Jesus, for salvation, but Jesus knows that now is not the time. Jesus has something else that he needs to do, and it involves a fig tree. Look at verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So Jesus arrived in Jerusalem uh, on the donkey late in the evening, and he went straight to the temple, and he looked around and he observed everything that was, was going on in the temple, which we'll look at in a moment. And then he left. And where Jesus spent the night after visiting the temple is very significant. He stayed at a Motel 6 in Bethany. Now, what's so interesting is that Bethany means the house of unripe figs. So Jesus stays the night in the house of unripe figs, and then he gets up in the morning and curses the unripe fig tree, if you will, the one that doesn't have any figs. Now, if you are environmentally conscious or if you are a tree hugger, and this is California, so I suppose there are some, if you're a tree hugger, then I'm going to assume that this passage is not one of your favorite passages in the Bible. Why does Jesus curse this innocent fig tree? Well, in order to understand what's happening here, we have to understand what fig trees were like and then what fig trees represented in the Bible. First, Middle Eastern fig trees bore two kinds of fruit. In the spring, before the leaves would appear, fig trees would produce these little nodules called pagim that people would pick and eat. And then shortly after the appearing of these early figs, the pagim, the leaves would bloom, the paghime would fall to the ground, and then the real figs would appear. So when Jesus sees this fig tree with leaves, he is expecting to find some of the early figs or the paghime on the tree. Mark tells us it was not the season for the mature, uh, real figs, but it was time, it was the season for the early figs. It was the time for the pagim to be on the tree, and Jesus found none of those, and so he cursed the tree. The tree had no prefigs, and when Jesus curses it, it was a living parable being acted out on the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel like the tree, should have been bearing fruit. They had all the signs, but they had no fruit. And so second, in the Old Testament, the fig tree was a symbol of the nation of Israel. In fact, Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, speaks of God's judgment on Israel using this language. Jeremiah 8.13 says, When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine nor figs on the fig tree. So when Jesus curses this fig tree, what he is doing is cursing the old covenant system, the sacrifices, the temple, all of uh, the things that were pointing towards him, pointing towards the Messiah. He's cursing all of those things, all of the things of the old covenant. But Jesus is not finished exposing the hearts of the nation yet. This time, he will expose the hearts of the nation By acting like Indiana Jones. Look at verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And as he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Remember the night before this event, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and observed what was happening at the temple. And then he left. And now he shows up again, but he shows up this time like an 80s action hero, terrorizing Soviets. Jesus begins flipping tables and chairs over, chasing people out of the temple. John tells us in his gospel that Jesus dumped all of their money out. So picture Jesus breaking uh, all of their piggy banks and just throwing stacks of Benjamins up in the air. John also tells us that Jesus made a whip of cords and chased people away. So picture Jesus like Indiana Jones, skillfully whipping people. If they want to make God's house, the temple, like a circus... Jesus will turn these money-hungry people into circus animals that obey his every word and obey his every whip. And then Jesus blocked the entrance to the temple, Mark tells us, and he would not let anyone pass through. Keep in mind something here. Jesus is not sinning when he is doing this. This is a righteous anger because his house got turned into a farmer's market where the greed of man was king, where the almighty dollar was being worshipped, and prayer was nowhere to be found, and neither were any Gentiles. The area of the temple where all of this occurred was called the court of the Gentiles. In this picture, it's the area that's colored in red there, and and the yellow arrow there is, is pointing to the holy of holies. In the temple area. So you have this whole huge area there where the Gentiles were invited to come and pray and seek Yahweh. This is where it's all taking place. The court of the Gentiles was this enormous area surrounding the Holy of Holies, and Gentiles could come and they could inquire about Yahweh. They could inquire about the Lord, inquire about his ways, inquire about his laws and his commandments. The temple was to be a place where people, the people of Israel, cried to God in prayer. Jesus quotes both the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah in verse 17. The temple was to be a place of prayer, a place where you could come and say, I'm helpless, Lord, help. A place where you could come, as we saw last week, A place of prayer where, number one, you could tell God how you feel. And number two, you could tell God where you hurt. And number three, you could tell God what you want. A place where you take what's going on in your world, the things that you don't understand, and you pair them up with the things that you do know and understand about Jesus. That was to be the temple. A place of prayer where you came with all of your burdens and sorrows and stresses and worries. You take everything in your world, even the things that you don't understand. And you pair them up with the things that you do understand and the things that you do know about the Lord. That was to be the temple. And this giant area surrounding the Holy of Holies was supposed to be a place where Gentiles could come and pray those things too and where they could learn and inquire about Yahweh. But the nation of Israel had lost sight of this. And when Jesus points this out to them, the religious leaders wanted to kill him. They were intimidated by Jesus. They were afraid of him. They only saw Jesus come in like an 80s action hero terrorizing Soviets. They should have been connecting the dots that he was actually the Messiah. But they were blind. Therefore, they did not understand that each flipped table, each hurled chair, each broken piggy bank, each crack of the whip was sending a message out to the world that Jesus can't get close enough to his people. This is why the temple existed. This is why Jesus flipped tables and cracked a whip. But the nation of Israel had lost sight of this. Instead of becoming a place of prayer, a place of worship, the temple became a place of commerce. Instead of becoming a place of rest, where you could come in and rest and hear that God is sovereign and hear that he loves you and hear that he forgives you of your sins, instead of being that place where you could come and go, the gospel is true. Instead of that, it became a place of business and a place of busyness. Churches can become places of business and places of busyness too. Ray Ortland said, "I will give you rest." Matthew eleven twenty eight, the gospel in five simple short words. That's what should have been happening in the temple. That should have been the banner that hung over the entrance. Come to me and I will give you rest. Through the sacrificial system that God had set in place, Yahweh was inviting sinners to come into his presence, to enjoy him, to enjoy fellowship and communion with him. And at the temple, Jews and Gentiles could come and pledge their allegiance to Yahweh and enjoy communion with him. Through all of the sacrifices and the priests that were there in their priestly ministry, Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, was saying to Israel and saying to the nations of the world, to all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a Savior to all who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and to whoever will come. This temple opens wide her doors and offers her welcome in the name of Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. That should have been blasting on all the speakers throughout Jerusalem and all over Israel so that the nations would hear, your God's this good and this merciful and this kind, and then they would come and see what Yahweh was like but Israel dropped the ball. They lost sight of their mission because they lost sight of the Lord. And it's easy for churches to do that, isn't it? Israel lost sight of their first love. It's easy for churches to do that. It's actually very easy for cho- churches, did I say very easy for churches to focus on mission And in the process, lose sight of Jesus. Think about that. It's very easy for churches to become obsessed about their mission and then lose sight of Jesus. I know that sounds crazy, but it's true. If you're not coming here, first and foremost, to grace, to taste and see that the Lord is good, to enjoy sweet fellowship with Jesus, if that's not the reason why you're coming here, primarily you'll get angry. You know why? Because you'll say, you're not meeting my needs. If you're not coming here first and foremost to say, it's about Jesus. I want to love him because he loves me. If that's not your main reason for coming here, you will think that we're not meeting your needs. Again, to quote Ray Ortland, because I think we need to hear what he's saying. He says, the sacred center of Christianity is Christ himself. Coming personally to the person. Coming directly to the mediator. No one but Jesus can call us with such authority, and no one but Jesus can encourage us with such a promise. No one else can give us rest. If our primary purpose in church is to connect with one another, that's what we'll get, one another, and we'll end up angry. Only Jesus gives us rest. If we will put him first and come to him first, then we'll have something to give one another. If our primary purpose in church is outreach and mercy and justice, we'll end up exhausted. Only Jesus gives us rest. If we will put him first and come to him first, we'll be renewed for endless mission. There are as many false and disappointing centers as there are impulses in our hearts. Everything else will let us down. Everything. Only one has ever said and can ever say, Come to me, and I will give you rest. His offer stands, and we don't have to deserve it. He gives it, but he does come first. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with being a missions-minded church, but if that comes first, we'll become angry when we aren't that. If we want to be a missions-minded church and we make that the priority, then we will become angry When that is not what we are. And we'll get exhausted. And if our primary purpose for gathering here at Grace is to connect with other people. Then that's all we'll get. Each other. What we need is Jesus. First and foremost. Returning to our first love. He comes first. He is the center. There are a million things that we could declare the center. As there are impulses in our hearts. But he is the center. Discipleship. Because simultaneously, life in in Jesus, sweet fellowship with Jesus, enjoying Jesus as our first love, and also death to self. And when we mess that up, or get tired of hearing about Jesus and his love for us, we will end up angry, bitter, and exhausted. This is where the nation of Israel went wrong. Yahweh didn't come first anymore. They had first commandment issues. And then they not only lost sight of Yahweh, they lost sight of their mission to be a light to the nations. That's what happens when Jesus and the gospel are not the primary focus of a church. You eventually lose it all. And you don't even know that it happened. You could have 5,000 people and have lost it all. The heart is deceptive, Jeremiah tells us. Pretty soon you're just going through the motions just like what was happening here in the temple. And if you know your Old Testament, then you know that this has always been Israel's story. We don't have time to go into it now, but Jesus leaving the temple in verse 19 is an allusion back to Ezekiel 10 when the glory of the Lord leaves the temple. So this passage should really be called the triumphal departure. That's what was happening here. Jesus departs the temple Ezekiel style. He departs. Just like the glory of God leaving the temple in Ezekiel 10. And he wakes up in the morning and Jesus has a breakfast date with the fig tree. Look at verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt it in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, also who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Earlier, the crowd, you remember, cried, Hosanna, save us. And now Jesus tells them how they can be saved. They have to pray. They have to ask for forgiveness. They have to repent of their sins. They have to turn their back on the old sacrificial system and now trust in Jesus. Remember the old sacrificial system, the tabernacle, the temple, all the sacrifices, all of these things were pointing toward Jesus. But now Jesus, the Messiah, has come. So the old covenant is no more. It's not needed. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the sacrifice. And what saves is faith in his work, his cross, his sacrificial death. And that's what Jesus means when he speaks about cursing fig trees and casting mountains into the sea. All along, Jesus has been speaking about the judgment that is coming on the nation of Israel, the city of Jerusalem, on the temple, and on the old covenant with all of its sacrifices. Jesus has been speaking about judgment, the judgment that's on its way. And so when he brings up prayer, he's talking about faith. Faith in his work. Jesus is not giving us a license here to do bizarre things like curse our neighbor's fig tree or have Star Wars-like Jedi Knight powers to be able to cause mountains to be uprooted and then flown into the sea. Jesus is talking about having faith in his work, his life, his death, leaving the old covenant behind repenting of our sins and asking for forgiveness. Remember, what did the fig tree represent? The nation of Israel. What does the mountain represent? Mount Zion, Jerusalem. So when Jesus, because it's a little odd when Jesus responds to what he does to Peter. When Jesus responds to Peter pointing out the cursed fig tree, Peter says, look, the tree. And Jesus says, have faith in God. I uh, thought you were going to talk about the tree. That's what I was talking about, Jesus. When Jesus responds to Peter pointing out the cursed fig tree and then Jesus mentions prayer, he is saying that faith in his work now is what saves. In other words, Jesus is saying something like this. Have faith in God. Trust in what God is doing in the new covenant. Whoever walks away from the old covenant and casts Jerusalem and casts Mount Zion into the sea and does not doubt it in his heart but trust in me, what he says will come to pass. Whoever says in his heart, I'm done with the old covenant, be cast into the sea, he will be saved by my work. If you ask God to save you, if you believe, if you repent, ask for forgiveness of your sins, he will save you. When Jesus speaks of destroying a fig tree on a whim or casting Mount Zion into a sea and removing it from the map, He is speaking about turning away from the old sacrificial system that was centered in Jerusalem on Mount Zion and now having faith in him as the Messiah. To curse a fig tree is to say goodbye to the temple, say goodbye to the sacrifices, say goodbye to the old covenant, and to now, through repentance and faith, receive eternal life because of Jesus' life and death. To tell a mountain to be thrown into the sea is to say goodbye to the temple, to say goodbye to the sacrifices, say goodbye to the old covenant, and to now, through faith and repentance, to receive eternal life because of Jesus' life and death. That's why when Peter brings up the withered fig tree, Jesus says, have faith in God. That's why he brings up forgiveness of sins here, faith and repentance. His point is, have faith in what God is doing now in the new covenant. In other words, when you trust in Jesus, you are cursing the fig tree, cursing the old covenant, walking away from it. When you trust in Jesus, you are throwing Mount Zion, throwing Jerusalem into the sea and walking away from it and walking away from work's righteousness. I remember the temple, Jerusalem, Mount Zion was the center of Israelite religion. And he's saying, cast Mount Zion into the sea. The crowds and disciples cried out to Jesus, Hosanna, when he was riding into Jerusalem on the donkey. They cried out, save us. Save us. And now Jesus tells the disciples how to be saved. Curse the fig tree. Cast the mountain. Cast Mount Zion. Cast Jerusalem into the sea. Repent and believe. Jesus is saying, leave the old covenant behind. Believe and trust in my sacrifice, my death, my resurrection. Leave your self-righteousness behind. Leave all of your obedience to the law behind and trust in my obedience. Leave behind all of your goodness and trust in me. Jesus is condemning the old covenant system just like an 80s action hero terrorizing Soviets. He's cursing fig trees like he's using the force like a Jedi knight. And by condemning the fig tree, by cleansing the temple, by suggesting that Mount Zion be hurled into the sea, Jesus is telling us that all of the sacrifices and the rituals and the food laws and the types and the shadows, everything that that had to do with the outward administration of grace under the old covenant, he says it's gone. Everything that had to do with the outward administration of God's grace under the old covenant is gone. They're obsolete. We don't do those things. All of the sacrifices and ceremonial laws are now written on our heart because Jesus has fulfilled them for us. He fulfilled the law for us. So we don't need the sacrifices anymore. We don't need the priests anymore. We don't need to go to Mount Zion in Jerusalem. We don't need the dietary restrictions, which at a very practical level level means that bacon is back on the menu. We don't need the cleanliness laws that are spelled out in Leviticus. All of the eternal aspects of the old covenant that pointed to Jesus are now gone because he fulfilled the law on our behalf and repentance and trust in him is what saves us now. He saves us through repentance and faith. And just as Jesus predicted in Matthew 24, Jerusalem and the Old Covenant Temple was eventually destroyed by the Roman Emperor Titus in 70 A.D. And so within 30 or 40 years of Jesus cleansing the temple, the temple was destroyed. It vanished away in 70 A.D. when Titus and company took a wrecking ball to the temple. Titus and his army came in like an 80s action hero, terrorizing Soviets. Except they terrorized the city of Jerusalem and all its inhabitants. You can read about it in Josephus, the Jewish historian. You can read about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. It was awful. The carnage that happened when Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed is overwhelming to read about. Josephus said it was like there were rivers of blood flowing through the streets. That's how many people died. I think over a million people died Were slaughtered. People were eating their own kids. There was no food. It was incredible carnage. And the temple being destroyed and Jerusalem being ransacked by Titus in 70, AD, in 70 AD was the final nail in the coffin on the old covenant. Jesus is the true temple. As he said in John 2.19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. All of the sacrifices that were pointing to him, he has now fulfilled through his death. And now he's the true temple, the true sacrifice. And what the disciples need now is faith and trust, not working to earn their way. That's why Jesus says in verse 22, have faith in God. Faith is what connects you to Christ. Faith in his work, justification by faith. And faith, Jesus said, is what enables you to forgive others. This is at the heart of the new covenant that Jesus can't get close enough to his people and he comes to us and meets us here through the preaching of the word, through baptism, through the Lord's Supper. He meets us here because he can't get close enough to his people. And that's the whole point of the incarnation, is that Jesus would become just like us, a human being just like us in every way, sin being the only exception. He came to be like us so that we could see him. We could see God with our eyes, touch God with our hands for all of eternity. Derek Thomas said, God's presence is his most treasured gift. It is at the heart of what he promises covenants to his people you are with me that's what Jesus says to us now you're with me you're with me now and as we gather here each week as we celebrate baptisms like we did this morning and as we celebrate the Lord's Supper as we celebrate communion like we did last week Jesus says to us once again you are mine you're with me now and we want to take this good news to the Central Coast. We want to return to our first love and then take this good news to the Central Coast. We want to be able to look at our neighbors and our coworkers and family members and that barista at Starbucks and invite them to grace and tell them to all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a Savior, to all who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and to whoever will come this church opens wide her doors and offers her welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't think of a better invitation to church than that. Why not try it out on someone this week? Let's return to our first love this morning and let's enjoy him and then let's go share this good news with others. May John Calvin's life motto become ours this morning. Calvin said, My heart I offer to you, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. Let's offer our hearts now to Jesus, our first love, promptly and sincerely. Jesus, we thank you for your great love for us. Thank you that you made the way possible. Sinners could draw near because of your one-time sacrifice. Never to return to any sort of temple or sacrifices in any way, but it is finished, and we thank you for that work. Stir our hearts again this morning that we would return to you our first love, Father, even as we sing this last song, Father. Catch us off guard, and may we offer our hearts to you right now promptly and sincerely. Amen.